and welcome back to the Aspiring Black Social Worker Podcast. I'm your host, Shaw. I am a rising third year MSW student, and this podcast is my landing ground, a place for me to process all I am learning in grad school, and a space for me to discuss the various topics I have been been pondering throughout the week. Um, When you get a chance, please, please subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and rate and review. And also follow me on Instagram at Aspiring Black Social Worker. All right, let's take a quick break so I can let you know that this episode is being brought to you by. Just kidding. I don't have any sponsors, but my sister did request one of the topics for the first segment. So let's just hop right into it. My sister shared an Instagram post with me about how higher potencies in weed are leading to a rise in marijuana addictions. So basically, there was this huge study, well, actually a combination of like 20 studies that involved close to 120,000 people. The researchers looked at the types of cannabis that people used and their addiction and mental health problems. And I'm just going to summarize what I read. But basically, they found that um, the weed, cannabis, like whatever you call it, that people are using is a lot stronger than back in the day, which is not only leading to addiction, but psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. And I feel like we see this like every so often, every four years or so, there's some study that's coming out telling us that the weed is stronger and kind of a warning that, you know, you need to be cautious of your marijuana use. Now, what these researchers suggested is that we need public health guidelines and policies to make cannabis use safer, to reduce harm. They suggest that in places where cannabis is legally sold, there should be accurate information on the product content and access to lower potency products. Um, so just pretty much like a nutrition facts, right? For the, for the weed. Now I'm no conspiracy theorist, but I can really see this study being used to make the case to one, legalize cannabis nationwide, but two, keep it illegal if you buy it off of Jack down the street, right? So instead of going to a dispensary, if you buy it from Jack, it's illegal because his product does not have clear nutritional facts. It doesn't tell you what the strain is. It doesn't tell you what the potency is. It doesn't give you all that product information that the researchers suggested. But because the dispensary rule have this, it's considered safer than what Jack is dealing out here. Um, So this will keep the profits of the sales from the guy that some of y'all got programmed in y'all phone from Jack. And it will keep the profits in the hands of the guy who was able to take out a loan to get investors to, you know, get a property to buy the building, all this stuff. The person who's able to actually get their own dispensary will rake in the dough while Jack down the street is elite is still illegal for him to sell it right and 
you know, with the way we hear all these stories all the time about people's weed being laced with harder drugs like fentanyl, unbeknownst to the buyer, it's highly likely that people will just feel safer going to a dispensary. And honestly, a dispensary is just more reliable, right? You don't have to wait on Jack to be available. It's like a grocery store. You know the hours of operation and you pick up what you want when it's convenient for you. Which leads me, though, to my next point. I truly believe that there are more people addicted to weed than we realize. In looking at the DSM criteria, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So this is how they diagnose people with mental disorders. The criteria honestly reminds me of some of the people I used to hang around when I was younger. Mind you, I have literally always been afraid of having an addiction. I, like those clubs, like Just Say No, Dare. I remember I was in high school, I was in the Green um, green Light Society. Like all of these programs worked on me. I've always been afraid to use drugs. So this is not a personal example, okay? I am literally just reading it straight from the DSM, the requirements of the cannabis use disorder, meaning what it takes to be addicted to marijuana, THC, weed, whatever you want to call it. And if you hear noise in my background, that is my daughter busting in. Um, but I'm going to read the diagnostic criteria. And I want you to think about whether you know anyone like this. It may be you. Hopefully not. But it could be. Okay. So here are the criteria. A problem it has to be a problematic pattern of cannabis use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifest manifested by at least two of the following over a 12 month period. So I'm going to read you a list of 11 criteria. You only need to meet two of these to be considered addicted to cannabis. All right. So the first criteria is that cannabis is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended. Number two, there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control cannab cannabis use. I was going to say cannibal, cannabis use. And I, you always hear people say, I'm going to quit. I'm not going to smoke. But then they don't smoke for like a week and they're right back at it. Number three, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain cannabis, use cannabis, or recover from its effects. And when I was growing up, some of the people I hung around, they woke up smoking, like they wanted to smoke as soon as they woke up. Then if they didn't have it, what would they do? They'll call person number one. That person didn't answer, they called person number two, and they would literally spend time trying to find out where they're going to get it, where they're going to meet them, get the money, like all that. So think about that. Do you know anyone like that? <laughs> number four, craving or a strong desire or urge to use cannabis. People say they're not addicted, but yet they always want to smoke, right? Number five, recurrent cannabis use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. 
people start to smoke, chew their gummies, whatever. Either they are done for the day, they ain't, they ain't no good. They somewhere sitting down, relaxing, sleeping, or they hungry, <laughs> or they're being real goofy, having a good time. All which, you know, it's not bad, but I know several people who couldn't get jobs because they couldn't pass a drug test. So isn't that a failure to fulfill your major role obligations at work, school, or home? Because if you can't get a job, how are you going to take care of your home? Or if you too high to do your schoolwork, how are you going to do it? You can't study. You can't fulfill anything. So, yeah. Number six, continued cannabis use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of cannabis. I don't really, I don't have no examples for that one. But if you know someone, you know someone. Number seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are giving up or reduced because of a cannabis use. I know plenty of people who would smoke and not want to do anything else. You might have plans. You might have an idea of something and you just don't do it because you're high. <laughs> Number eight. Recurrent cannabis use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. People smoke and drive all the time. People think they drive better when they smoke. People think they, oh, I'm at 10 and 2. I'm at 10 and 2. Look how, look how I'm driving. Okay? Now, I know that cannabis use affects your reaction times. Um, number, let's see, number 9. Cannabis use is continued despite the knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by cannabis. So that, I don't know what that could be. I don't have any examples for you right now, but I kind of feel like if you know that maybe some people say, oh, you know, I'm depressed. So they're smoking weed because it makes them joyful. But then when you don't have it, you're more depressed. So if you kind of recognize that pattern, then this might be what number nine is talking about. Number 10, tolerance as defined by either of the following. A, a need for markedly increased amount of cannabis to achieve intoxication or the desired effect. Two, I mean, B, markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of cannabis. So that's just saying you need more cannabis more weed to get to the same level of high that you like to be at, that you were normally at. So the longer you use it, you have to increase your potency. And that could be why people, I don't know, I don't smoke, but that could be why people may start off smoking once a day and then they increase it twice a day, then they increase it three times a day. And next thing you know, you're smoking at every interval or you feel like you got to smoke before you can do anything. Number 11, withdrawal as manifested by either of the following. A, the characteristic withdrawal syndrome for cannabis. I didn't read all that. Um, or cannabis is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. So you're pretty much smoking to make sure you don't go through whatever feeling it is when you come down from your high. Um, keep in mind that it's out of all those 11, if you have... If someone you know, I'm not going to say you, but if someone you know have experienced two of these symptoms over 
a 12 month period or within that 12 month period. So it does have to be um, persistent. It can't just be you did, you were taking cannabis longer one day than you, than you expected. But over this 12 month period, if these are persistent problems. Then you, my friend, or someone you know, is considered to be addicted to weed, to cannabis, however you take your cannabis. So I hate to say it, but I'm going to say it. It is possible to be addicted to that good old Mary Jane y'all be singing about. (laughs) And I say this because you can literally, literally replace the word cannabis in any of those 11 criteria I just read to y'all, and it would constitute addition for any other substance. So if I read those criteria, but I said alcohol, if I read those criteria and I said opioids, that would constitute addiction. The difference is in the effects. Typically, people using cannabis aren't really a danger to themselves or others. They're not really hallucinating or believe that something's there that's not there, or becoming overly violent, or any, like, no, the the effects are way more subdued than what people would consider a harder drug. But what the study found is that the increased potency of THC is leading people to develop more severe mental disorders. So what I wonder about is predisposition, right? Are the people who develop the more severe disorders from using THC already genetically predisposed to a more severe disorder, such as schizophrenia? Um, And then the marijuana triggers it into activation. So you're predisposed, but you're not having any symptoms. You're not diagnosed with schizophrenia, but genetically you have that predisposition. You start smoking marijuana, as time goes on, you're increasing the dose, increasing the dose, or increasing the potency, and then it's triggered, and now you are experiencing the symptoms of schizophrenia. Whether you go to the mental health clinic and get diagnosed or not, there's something off, right? So I just really caution anyone against using marijuana or any addictive substances and I know how we especially in the black community and no not even just the black community because I don't want to put that on us the whole world I know how people feel about marijuana and weed and they feel like it's like a very useful drug and I believe there are some very good effects of weed I definitely believe it can be used to manage pain and while it may not be while you can be addicted to it it's probably not as bad for you as an opioid or something like that. Um, but I would caution people against using it, but I would especially caution those who have a family history of mental health disorders or addiction because you may be predisposed to either addiction, schizophrenia, another severe mental disorder, or both, right? And you just don't know how it's going to react in you. So just because your buddy smokes weed, you know, on the weekends and during the week he's good, that may not be you. You may start smoking on the weekends and quickly escalate to 
needing to smoke five times a day. You just don't know how it's going to affect you. So I just never recommend trying a substance thinking that you can handle your usage and it won't be a problem because I guarantee you that everyone who is battling battling addiction initially thought the same thing. And now they're in the situation where they're trying to come out of addiction. And one more thing, please, please don't use weed or cannabis to self-medicate due to another issue. Especially if that issue really is unknown and you don't know what's wrong with you. Like you think you just are depressed, but really you are bipolar. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't know. So please take any issues that you're having seriously. Seek professional help and do not use weed as a... Um, a placer for other medication. Um, it's just not, it's really not safe. Um, so sister, I hope that was what you were looking for in this discussion. I don't know, but that's what I got for you. Okay. Now the other thing that's been on my mind actually kind of bothering me is people specifically black people who feel like what one black person does is either a detriment or a benefit to the entire black race i posted about this on instagram briefly and a guy made this video about deshaun watson and his sexual misconduct towards like a slew of women And while the guy in the video made a lot of great points, I mean, I was literally clapping because I was in total agreement. But he made this one statement that just kind of upset me. He said that because society already views black men in a hypersexualized way, um, Deshaun did black men no favors by his actions. Pretty much saying that he makes all black men look bad. And I understand this viewpoint. Society loves a stereotype, especially a negative one that can be used to justify discrimination, oppression, and the likes. Just like the stereotype of black men being thugs. So when Trump said that, Trump said that Mexicans are coming into this country to rape women. Um, Stereotypes can be used and are still used to instill fear regarding particular groups of people. So this segment isn't really about Deshaun Watson. It's more about this idea of one black person either bringing the black community to new heights or bringing them to new lows. (laughs) That just irritates the crap out of me. Um, And I definitely believe in like being your brother's and sister's keeper. But it's just... It's not fair to put that much weight of one person's actions on the entire community of people. My pushback is that we got to stop trying to be acceptable to white people. This is the same rhetoric that has black women getting relapses. I literally just saw a video of a woman, like right before I started recording this podcast, who said she was embarrassed because her daughter said that her hair was her hair was nappy in front of white people. 
Like, who cares that it was in front of white people? Like, what? what is that? Why is that attributing to your embarrassment? We have to be okay with our own community, our own beings, before we can really affect change in society. How can we demand fair treatment when it seems like we're seeking assimilation? And if you're seeking assimilation, that means that anything deemed unacceptable by white people is a reason to deny equal rights. So that is just kind of, I've seen stuff like this. I mean, over the years, I've heard it. I've been this person. So I'm not even like speaking from a place of like, I'm high and mighty. I'm speaking from a place of, I used to be a person who was trying to be someone who would be acceptable so I could fit in, get to, you know, certain levels in certain environments. So I get it. But when we make statements like this, what I realize is that we are othering ourselves. In case you aren't familiar with the term othering, othering is when you pretty much choose a group, a belief, a race, a religion, choose something and that is considered dominant and the norm. So that anything that falls outside of this group is abnormal. Othering typically has a negative connotation because it is saying that the abnormal group is less than in some way. So when we look to white society for what is considered the standard, then we are unable to accept who we are as being normal as well. So if we decide that white society is the norm, anything else is abnormal in a negative way. This is really a form of internalized racism. We have to set our own standards. And I'm not even talking about just like the black community. I'm talking about individually. Because society will only truly be equal when each person is looked at as an individual and not as part of some large community of people that that person doesn't even know majority of this group, right? Like, yes, I'm in the black community. I probably know less than 0.0001% of the black community though, right? Like, it's just so, it's impossible to represent a whole group of people or generalize something about a whole group of people. Now, I'm not advocating that we get rid of the idea of the black community. I love it. I love the idea of black culture and what that means. But what I am saying is that each person needs to get to a place within themselves where they realize that they are the standard for themselves. If you find that you reduce yourself or limit yourself based on what you consider is the worst portrayal of the group you identify with, then I encourage you to explore why you do that. Why do you think that? It may have roots in the acceptable Negro or the model minority tropes that our elders and ancestors thought would gain us equality and access to the American dream. But you can be a model minority and still experience oppression 
You can be an acceptable Negro and still be denied justice because of the color of your skin. So why not just embrace who you are and be your authentic self, whoever that is? Some of us will be authentic and still have folks call us ghetto, still call us a sellout, um, you know, still make these judgments and things about us. There's just no way to make everyone happy. So just decide to be happy. Whatever makes you happy. Um, if you like your hair in its natural state, wear it in its natural state. If you like your hair relaxed, wear it relaxed. I just don't want us doing it to fit into this picture of what it is to be an acceptable black woman. Or I don't want us doing it because we feel like this is the only way we're going to be accepted in this society. So don't put yourself into a box. Don't put anybody else into a box. And don't allow anyone to place you into a box. And definitely... Definitely do not take on the weight of trying to be perfect just so the white community will look favorably on the entire black community. There's just no way for you to do that. So that's my issue is that Deshaun Watson is not making black men look bad. Deshaun Watson is making himself look bad as he should look bad because of his actions. He deserves justice. I mean, these women deserve justice, not him. He deserves to suffer whatever consequences come his way. You as a black woman, if you're embarrassed because your daughter called your hair nappy, be embarrassed because you are teaching your daughter differently or because you wish it just wasn't said, but don't be embarrassed because she said it in front of white people. Like, let's, let's get this othering of ourselves out of here let's get rid of this internalized racism because honestly every community has good people bad people in between people so don't fall for this trap of trying to like make a case (laughs) that we belong in America or in this world, in whatever society you're in. Don't try to make a case <laughs> for the whole entire black community that you that we belong here because clearly if you look at culture, you'll see that we really do set these trends out here, right? We really do have people looking to us for what is you know, cool. What's You know, what's the like, what's the trendy thing to do, how to dress, how to act, how to talk, you know, how to behave. People want to be like that. And it's just too much pressure, guys. That's that's my whole point is it's too much pressure. I refuse to allow somebody to lump me into this big group of people that I don't know. Like, if you want to tell me that I'm a representation of my family I can accept that. I'm not I'm not going to accept it completely, but I can accept that when you see me out, I'm a representation of my husband, of my children, of my mother, of my father, of my close family, right? I can accept that, but what I'm not going to accept is that I am representing black women everywhere. <laughs> That's too much. 
and I don't want no parts of that. Since um, my summer classes are over and I have not yet started my fall classes, I decided to talk a little bit today in the segment this week in um, graduate school. I want to talk about the Association of Social Workers Board and the report they just released. So the Association of Social Workers Board, the ASWB, just released their 2022 report of ASWB exam pass rates. And the findings show that on all social work exams, whether that's the bachelor's exam, the master's exam, the advanced generalist exam, the associate's exam, the clinical licensure exam, black people had the lowest pass rates. And of course, members of just various marginalized racial groups had lower passing rates um, than our white counterparts. And this isn't a new phenomenon, of course. We know that standardized testing typically has a element that is biased towards marginalized groups, and it just makes it difficult for them to pass and if you look at like critical race theory and what they say about standardized testing, um, they say things like that any knowledge acquired from any other group than whites is presumed inferior. Um, so pretty much knowledge from black people, knowledge from Hispanic people, knowledge from Asian groups, knowledge from indigenous groups, um, the way we impart knowledge and use knowledge to our benefit um, isn't the way that these licensing boards and regulatory boards find to be um, relevant. <laughs> I'm trying to find a nice way to put this, but pretty much they don't value our knowledge the way we value our knowledge, right? So looking at it from a critical race theory perspective, things like experience, things like um, life lessons, things like just working with people and understanding how people, you know, work and live isn't considered um, relevant to these tests. Um, and research, of course, shows that standardized tests are typically biased towards marginalized groups, students who are black, indigenous, and other people of color. So that's just kind of a critical race theory perspective. Um, and they say is, of course, due to structural racism. But that's not really where I'm going with this. <laughs> but I just didn't even know about this report. And this is kind of a big deal because this is the first report from the ASWB releasing the pass rates based on demographics. I just started grad school in 2020. And 2020 is the same year that the ASWB started receiving requests for them to release a report of this kind. And it's kind of funny because 
the chief executive officer of the ASWB wrote this open letter to like these directors and deans of like colleges and programs who were calling for them to release pass rates. And um and they were the chief executive officer explained in this open letter why the ASWB does not collect this information. And I'm gonna read to y'all what he said because it was kind of funny to me. But he said his name was like Dr. Hyman or something like that. But he said by now most of you are aware of the policy the ASWB has followed since the inception of the organization in 1979. ASWB does not collect and thus does not release exam outcomes based on demographics. It is the written policy of ASWB as directed by the ASWB Board of Directors. We explained our process and policy in a letter sent in February to the President of the National Deans and Directors in response to the NADD's initial request for this information. Never, nevertheless, for the past several months, many of you, individually and collectively, have been asking our member boards for this data and asking whether individuals sitting for the exams have an equal chance of being successful. The unstated assertion is that people of color do not have an equal opportunity and that the exams are biased. And that really cracked me up because he was really being petty. <laughs> he pretty much was saying, per my last communication, I already told y'all what's up. But since y'all keep asking, I would explain it one more time for y'all. Like, that's what I got from that, that opening paragraph there. Um, but the letter went on to explain that when they are creating these exams, they have question writers, people who write the questions. They have these people and then they have a committee who reviews each question for bias. He said that the committee is made up of diverse people. They're all volunteers and it's pretty much a very rigorous product process. So they are confident that their exams are free of bias. He, he talks some more, but he goes on to say that they will explore some options regarding the release of demographic data. So in between this time, there was actually a lot of drama around this, apparently. Like, this is what I'm saying. Like, I feel like I had no clue any of this was going on. Like, this was not talked about in any of my social work classes. This was not released by the School of Social Work at um, my college. So... I just, I feel like this is the kind of stuff that we should know of and we should be apprised of. And maybe that's on me for not really understanding what the ASWB is and what they do. But I also feel like it's a responsibility of the graduate school that I'm in to keep us updated on these kinds of things because it does impact the profession. So... In between 2020 and 2021, I mean, I was looking at just different articles in these journals about um, this process. People were calling the ASWB out pretty much and was saying that what they're saying doesn't make sense. If you're saying that you are trying to protect against bias, wouldn't it make sense to have to collect demographic data so you know whether or not the questions are biased and to kind of see the results of your unbiased question examination process. I mean, it was just very interesting. But <laughs> in 2021, the ASWB released another statement in which they vowed to honor the profession's values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. 
They said that they will start building partnerships with social work educators and provide them with resources necessary to ensure that their students, that social work students, are prepared to pass the licensure exams. They also said that they were going to engage with the social work community by creating the Social Work Workforce Coalition. And part of that coalition's job would be to gather input from social work practitioners, licensed and unlicensed social workers, in an effort to create a survey of the entire profession. The survey will be called the Social Work Census, and it is set to launch in 2023, so next year. Then they will use the results of this um, survey to create new exams by 2025. So it looks like some progress is being made, but this just goes to show that social work is not some evolved and progressive profession. There are still a bunch of people running things behind the scenes who have not realized or now who are just now realizing the need for change. But that makes me wonder, how did you not know this? How did like how do you not have someone telling you and you know how like whenever a celebrity does something wrong like I believe like Lizzo and Beyonce like think about them and they were using the word spaz in their music and the disability community called them out and people like you don't have people on your team that you know tells you these things like who's on the ASWB's team (laughs) that has not told them that these tests are biased and we need to be able to test for bias by gathering demographic information, gathering information from social workers and see what they believe the problem with the exams are up until now. Like this board, this ASWB has been an organization since 1979. That's a lot of time for us to still be sitting here talking about we didn't gather racial racial demographics, and it wasn't even just racial. If you look at the report, it's age, um, it's gender. So, like, you're not gathering this information? So, anyway, so 2022 was when the ASWB agreed to explore the possibility of releasing exam data with demographic information. And, you know, just thinking about our professions principles ethical principles one of those principles is to challenge social injustice and the focus is making sure marginalized populations have equal access to resources services and opportunity and that energy just has not been there for social workers from the same marginalized communities that we're working with to gain equal access we and resources and opportunity we don't have that for our exam processes like just come on people anyway so being that <laughs> the chief executive officer of the ASWB acknowledged that the Black Lives Matter movement of 2020 the year of George Floyd um is kind of the catalyst that pushed the ASWB and of course countless other organizations to take a hard look at their policies and practices their impact on black people, indigenous people, people of color. Um, I just have to say, like, George Floyd's daughter was right when she said that her daddy changed the world. Like, that's true. In big ways and little ways, 
the world is changing due to the pressure and the movement that followed from George Floyd's death. So I just thought that that was interesting. I I think I need to be a little more knowledgeable about just the practices that go on into the things that we do. Like I'm going to graduate and I can take the um, exam and next, I can register for the exam next semester or the, in January. So I'm just kind of thinking like, I'm about to go take this exam, not even realizing that this is a whole new, (laughs) this whole, this is a whole new process that they're embarking on. And yes, they're going to get new exams by 2025, but I'm planning on taking mine in 2023. So how should I study for this exam? And I was looking, I'm in this um, group on Facebook and people were talking about how they study for the exam and how they used, um, like they had like these certain study materials that they used to make sure they kind of knew all the material. But a lot of people were saying like, you have to answer these questions as if you have no experience being a social worker and all you have is the book knowledge that you received um, in grad school. So I am just kind of feeling a little bit nervous about that situation because I, I'm i not a social worker, but I have been working in what many people would consider like a social work type field for about seven years. So trying to remove all of that past experience that I have that real life on the job working with people from marginalized communities and people who are in horrible situations remove that experience and take this test as if all I know is the knowledge that I receive from these books so that is just um something that I thinking about and I was just kind of happy so I definitely recommend y'all check it out it's it's on the ASWB's website um I also recommend y'all checking out some of these these articles because I feel like they were they were really being a little petty too I just enjoyed it It it's a little drama (laughs) social work drama but yeah definitely check out the pass rates report and um take a look for yourself all right that is all I have for you all this week um remember to follow me on Instagram at aspiring black social worker remember to subscribe to the pod share the pod rate and review the pod if you're on pod on apple podcast and um yeah I want you all to have a fabulous week and I will talk to you all later bye